Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. I would like to acknowledge that I'm broadcasting today on the lands of the original storytellers of this place, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, here where sovereignty was never ceded. I pay respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging and those of all other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who may be listening today. On today's show, VoiceWorks has always been an influential journal, stacking the industry with young talent that emerge stronger as each new generation passes through its pages. Its stated purpose, to create a space for people under 25 to develop their creative and editorial skills and to publish and be paid for their fiction, non-fiction, poetry, art and comics. Joining me soon is the recently appointed editor, Adalia Nash-Hussein, and she will be uh, joining me later in the hour to discuss the journal, its mission and what's happening in its pages and online and in all sorts of forums right now. But very, very soon, climate catastrophe, police brutality, white genocide, totalitarian rule and the erasure of black history provide the backdrop for stories of love, courage and hope. After Australia is a collection of short stories by 12 of Australia's most daring Aboriginal writers and writers of colour, um, proving that, uh, you know, really imagining how Australia might be and Australia as it is as we head towards the year 2050. And I have to say, reading this collection of many of them quite dystopic imaginings, uh, it was all too resident and real, as I'm sure everyone can imagine. I will be joined very shortly by editor Michael Mohammed Ahmed and one of the contributors, Kea Oritz Latimer. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. Generations of a family strive to reconcile a devastating legacy. In dystopian Sydney, a woman faces the consequences of bringing illicit life to a city without hope. A young man grapples with family and identity while a deadly virus has white people up to blaming minorities yet again. And with Fiji lost beneath the Pacific, Australia becomes ever more hostile to those who would call it home. That's just a few of the stories in After Australia, an anthology of short stories by 12 writers, all Aboriginal people and people of colour, stories delving into climate catastrophe, police brutality, white genocide, totalitarian rule and the erasure of black history, all providing the backdrop for stories of love, courage and hope. Imagining Australia as it is and as it might be as we head towards the year 2050 in a climate where they all seem entirely possible and, in fact, versions of them are, in fact, happening. Joining me now on the line for this supposed collection of fiction uh, is the anthology editor, Michael Mohammed Ahmed, and one of the contributors, Kea Oretz Latimer. Uh, welcome, Kea and Mohammed. Hi, Mel. Hello. Mohammed, are you on the line as well? Just hoping we can hear Mohammed there. Uh, Kaya, while we've got you on the line, I might talk a little bit about um, participating in this collection. You've got a really interesting um, 
An interesting story there. It's uh, it's quite um, it's a verse uh, story, and it's sort of in in two small parts. Can you talk a little bit about your piece? Uh, yeah. So um, I decided to write poetry uh, because that's my strong point, and I've been really into experimental poetry. So writing um, sort of a story in verse was really appealing to me. Um, and the poems sort of explore uh, three central characters. There's a mother, her daughter, and there's also uh, the daughter's girlfriend plays a part in it as well. Um, I also consider one of the poems, which is about Kunani, uh, the mountain in Nipaluna Hobart. Uh, I sort of consider that as a kind of character in the story as well. Yeah, it's a, a really um, it's a really interesting coverage of um, of kind of what might be, you know. I gathered right from the start, you're sort of getting this sense that you're you're in a kind of dystopian future, um, but you're sort of getting this this weird sort of sense that it's something that could be happening now. Were you sort of thinking about it that way? Because while I was reading it, I was feeling like this is sort of a thing that many people uh, who are from sort of uh, first generation backgrounds might feel anyway that that they're sort of where they're originally from or where their families are from feels slightly like it maybe is a place that doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, a lot of what I wrote sort of stems also from how I feel as well, especially, yeah, with the distance and displacement in one of the poems, especially Swallow. Uh, I sort of centralise that displacement and that comes a lot from my own experience and yeah, I definitely feel like some of the things I touched on are, are things that um, are already affecting people now. You know, people, uh, young people coming of age in this time, it's sort of similar to how I imagine young people might come of age in 30 years because, you know, the world is so unstable right now. Yeah, have you? Um, I, I'm actually, when reading this collection, I sort of felt like all of the stories sort of weirdly spoke uh, to one another, um, and you were sort of fitted nicely within it. When you were sort of imagining this this future, did you really feel like it was something that was happening to you now? I mean, because you know, I sort of, I guess, because we're living through COVID, and because it is a kind of um, dystopian reality, that it does feel like. Um, people must have a sense of that but I imagine you wrote this well before this was this was actually our reality yeah so I was writing this last year um and definitely all the things that I felt while I was writing it have sort of compounded since COVID and everything else um but yeah um, when I was doing the research for this uh it really drove home to me the sense that where we are in terms of taking action on climate change is sort of a precarious situation and yeah it's, it definitely became more real to me and so I, I was able to channel that I think a little bit into the poems. Now I'd like to bring in um, uh, Mohammed Ahmed uh, who's the editor of the anthology. I'm hoping we've got you on the line now Mohammed. Yes, I'm here. Oh, wonderful. Yes, technology has been uh, a, a little against us today but look uh, 
you know, speaking to Kaya and, and really one of the major feelings that I got from reading this anthology was, was that it was a terrifyingly apt, um, you know, set of stories for now that many, many of which had been written sort of meditating on climate change and on racism and on endemic racism and the, the kind of horrible collision of the two, uh, which is sadly something that I guess we've really experienced in our present. It's not a dystopic fantasy. This is actually the reality. Is that is that sort of something that, that has really struck you since uh, since the publication of this book? Uh, yeah, so firstly what I'll say is uh, salamu alaikum to you and to all the listeners, uh, which means peace be upon you in the language of my ancestors. I also want to say hello to Kaya because we actually haven't gotten to speak since the book came out. And I just want to say congratulations. I think her particular po- poems in the collection are very special because her style of poetry is incredibly unique. And, um, and we're really honoured that um, we were able to include poetry in this book, which has mainly been prose, uh, poetry by Kea and also by Amber and Clay Mulliner. Now, um, to answer your question about the timeliness, you know, the aptness of this um, collection, I think you chose the right word when you say terrifying because it was never intended to be a book about right now. It was written um, as a vision for 2050. And we started working on the book 18 months ago. And when we began working on the book, we could never have predicted the bushfires, COVID-19, the um, incredible uh, power um, of the Black Lives Matter movement following the murder of uh, George Floyd. So those kinds of moments um, that are ongoing have really uh, cemented After Australia as a book, not so much about the future, but more so about our past and present and where we might be going. Yeah, absolutely. I didn't feel like there was any kind of incongruity. In fact, if anything, it was just this dawning horror that this is in fact uh, our reality. Um, Oma Seca's uh, White Flu was a really particularly apposite uh, one. Did you want to talk a little bit about that piece? Yeah, uh, absolutely. So um, I would say that when Omar wrote White Flu, which was a, 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 it's like a, a global pandemic, and, uh, you know, as you would know, the um, usual kinds of pandemics, including the one that we're currently in, uh, the, the, the groups they mainly affect are usually Indigenous people and people of colour disproportionately to white people. And so Omar wrote a subversive story which flipped the lens on that and looked at a, a, the, the idea of a flu that, that unfairly represents and over-represents people who would be identified as white. And it was quite uh, interesting that he wrote the story and finished it about three months before uh, we, anyone had even really heard of COVID-19. And, you know, he was writing about ideas like Mexico um, is considering uh, closing its border to stop, you know, white Americans getting in. And then, you know, we started uh, hearing uh, similar kinds of ideas about Mexico closing its border and um, it, during COVID-19. And so it was kind of terrifying how easily um, uh, this story fit into the current pandemic. But what I'll say is it's a work of fiction. And what's been so interesting about After Australia as an anthology, stories like White Flu, and then even if you look at the cover, which is like, you know, there's like a white, it's a cartoon of a white family and their faces have literally been scribbled out with a pencil. And, um, and it's been so interesting to see the incredible amount of resistance and fragility we've received, the amount of attacks, both 
you know, letters, angry emails, uh, social media attacks, accusing us, you know, this collective of people of colour and Indigenous people who have put together this book as the real racists and as, you know, people who are perpetuating crimes against white people. It's incredible to me that there is... Um, that, that so many uh, people who would be identified as white in Australia are more offended by fictional stories um, that critique whiteness than they are about the reality of, you know, Indigenous genocides, the reality of things like the Christchurch massacre, the reality of the over-representation of, um, of people, people of colour and Indigenous people being affected by COVID-19 to white people. It's really interesting because I think um, particularly fiction has the power to cut through uh, and I think, uh, you know, really uh, deliver these kind of feelings straight into your system. Um, so I do think that there's a reason if, if people are trying to hold on to things that uh, perhaps they shouldn't be um, to fear this kind of writing in many ways because it is very powerful. Um, I felt like the, the way that this story, these sets of stories were collected was also extremely, um, you know, effective. Um, they've been um, bookended and interspersed with story with uh, pieces by Hannah Donnelly, uh, who kind of you know frames the the whole collection um, with both a, with prologues and then interludes and finally with an epilogue, giving this framing to every one of the stories that 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 is in this book um, against the backdrop of, you know, being on land that's stolen. Um, so it's really impossible to read these stories without reading the context uh, within which they were written. Was that, you know, was that something that was by design or is that is that how it, it fell together? Yeah. So I'll make two points on that. Um, firstly, uh, your point about the the kind of impact, you know, like the, like the how, how people will interpret this. I, I really think that it's a very good sign for people of colour and Indigenous people when they're making work that genuinely offends and upsets uh, people who would be identified um, as white supremacists, racists and white nationalists. I think that's usually a sign that we're saying the right things mm -hmm. because what, what, we're usually, what it usually means is that we're disrupting a particular kind of comfort that is unacceptable anymore. And that is our job as artists, particularly as minority artists. It's our job to transform our society and our culture and help our, our situation move forward, move into a better place. And you can't do that without usually upsetting people who you would define as conservative, who, who want to keep things exactly as they are. Um, so firstly, I think it's a good sign that even though it, it hasn't been pleasant, I mean, in the case of Omaseka, it's been horrible to see people actually making death threats towards him because of his short story. But in terms of what it represents, I believe that books like After Australia represent um, change and transformation. Now, speaking um, uh, specifically about Hannah Donnelly, uh, not just before, even before Hannah Donnelly, the very, very first page, even before you see like the copyright page or the title page, there's an acknowledgement of country of country in the book. And um, and then I made the strategic decision as the editor of the book not to have any editor's notes. That the first thing you you, you know you, you see this acknowledgement of country, and then straight away it's Hannah Donnelly who frames the entire book with a prologue two interludes, and an epilogue. And I really felt like the book needs to start and finish um, with the voice of, um, of the Indigenous community. And I think that's because really when, when I think about Australia, that's what I think about. I think that Australia starts and ends with indigeneity. And I, there's, there's so much that I could say about Hannah. There's no way I could do her work any justice in this, in this interview. But what I would say is that by far... 
one of the most compelling and exciting and unique aspects of this book is the way Hannah has really created an arc. And, and really, you can start from the first page of this anthology and follow it through right to the end and really have a, a, not just an individual experience of each piece, but look at the, at the book as a whole and think about what the book is saying as a whole because of Hannah's contribution. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg, and I'm talking about the collection After Australia with editor Michael Mohammed Ahmed and uh, Kaya Latimer, um, who are, who is a contributor in this edition. Uh, Kaya, I, I do want to talk about um, one of your pieces, Ossify. It's a really interesting kind of um, box-like diagram of a piece uh, that I found myself reading uh, both side, uh, you know, down one side, down the other side, and then around and up, and got different things um, reading it different ways. Can you describe and explain a little bit about this piece? Yeah, so um, this poem is sort of an exploration of um, basically two possible possible paths in terms of uh, where climate action might lead too, but it's very abstract because, um, yeah, I wanted to make it sort of from the point of view of a young person who might be coming of age in 2050. And I just like the idea that there's, yeah, so there's these two possible paths, but they, they're sort of very intrinsically linked, I think. They seem to kind of, uh, you know, flow into one another and mm. back again. The, the final line uh, in this diagram is yesterday, today, tomorrow, and beneath each of those boxes, yesterday, I will have no children today, I will leave nothing behind but bones tomorrow, clean and lasting. And I found this so enormously affecting, uh, um, no matter which way it was read. Um, did you, do you feel as though those, both of those futures are kind of feel simultaneous somehow? Yeah, especially right now, um, which feels like a pivotal moment in time, they sort of feel simultaneous, but it does feel as though, we, you know, as time goes on, we'll be leaning towards one or the other. Yeah, I think um, I think I feel as though uh, it's it's like we we haven't seen this particular crisis coming, but you know you know that there's you know something inherent in the way humankind has been operating that that is going to lead to these outcomes, and we still have climate change all around us. Uh, Mohammed, I want to come back to you to to talk about some of the specific stories as well that are in here. You really have managed to to wind in quite a few perspectives um, uh, as well. Um, I wanted to talk about. Um, you know, like one in particular as well, uh, Rosanna Gonzalez is the East Australia Company Mango Bridge, uh, which I thought was a, a really interesting mashing up of, uh, you know, um, India's colonial history with Australia's colonial history uh, in, you know, with a futurism to it that's quite obviously horribly dystopic. Can you talk a bit about this story and, and some of the others, that the kind of um, incredible sort of um, diversity in this collection? Yeah, okay, I will. I can do that. Um, let me start by giving an overview that um, for anybody who doesn't, isn't aware and, or familiar with the anthology After Australia, it was published by a firm press in partnership with Diversity Arts Australia and Sweatshop Literacy Movement. 
And the concept, the idea of the book was originally conceived by uh, the director of Diversity Arts Australia and from a Lebanese-Australian background uh, named Lena Nahlos. And I was brought on as the editor and also as the partner from Sweatshop's uh, point of view. And then, of course, the firm press is our publisher. Now, um, what the original uh, idea of the anthology was trying to conceive was not just a diverse collection. So that was part of it, you know, that we bring together writers of colour and Indigenous writers, and that it's a kind of self-determined attempt to envision the future of this country. But in addition to that, I think what a lot of people miss is that it was we, we saw it as our responsibility to make sure that every state in Australia is represented. Uh, usually when you look at this kind of literature, some states are generally more overrepresented than others. You know, New South Wales and Melbourne tend to get the largest piece of the pie mm. whenever we're whenever we're, we're, we're talking about literature. But we wanted to make sure that there was a voice from every state in the country, a state and territory. And so um, what you get is not just a, a, an incredibly culturally and linguistically diverse body of work, but you get a kind of nationally diverse body of work. And you get stories that are set, you know, in the Northern Territory. You get stories that are set in Western Australia. You get stories that are set um, or that can't come out of uh, places like Tasmania. And, 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 you know, you get stories that are set in, in Brisbane and that, are, that have a very kind of localised uh, uh, sense of place in all of the different narratives. And so I think that's an important aspect of the book. Now, speaking specifically about Rowana Gonzalez's uh, story, what, what I, look, there's so much to say about um, her, her, her story. Um, and I think she probably, that story in particular, as, as well as perhaps Karen Wilde, fully embody what we mean when we talk about how the past, the present, and the future are interconnected. Absolutely. Usually, Usually when we are, um, when we're talking about, you know, science fiction or speculative fiction, people just think we're writing Star Wars. You know, we're talking about some crazy future. And I must admit, like, you know, not to be too harsh, but some of the kind of critics who seem to miss the point, their complaint has largely been, this isn't futuristic enough for the title and for the, for the way we promoted the book, because they were expecting, I think, a lot of stories to, to, to have, you know, like some, you know, crazy science fiction future aspect. And I think it was very hard for them to come to terms with the fact that stories like Rowana's are set 100 years in the past. And, um, and actually, if you read her story, what you see is the way in which if a little bit of the past changes, it radically transforms our future. Um, it's certainly something... I Yep. Yeah, I think I was just going to say that the Amberlynn uh, Koimalina um, story message from the Nagura Palya really does cover this. It's sort of this, you know, talking about time travel as, a, as you know, having a necessary sort of understanding of relationships being uh, what time is really about. And I thought that was a really interesting way of framing some of these, these things that actually, um, you know, in, in some senses our kind of, you know, relationship with um, with what history was is still kind of so confused that we're forced to ever repeat the past. Mm. Well, one thing, I, so uh, two, more, two things I would like to add to that is um, before I get to Amberlin, I'll just finish my point on Rowana's work and then I'll, and then I'll move on to Amberlin. Mm-hmm. One, one of the things that I think are really special about um, Rowana's story, and, you know, uh, it's, 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 it's one of the biggest pieces in the, in the book. It's, you know, it's about, uh, about 7,000 words, that piece. So it, it's, a, it's kind of like a novella or a novelette. And it's part of a larger body of work that she's developing. What I think is so special about Rowana's piece, outside of the discussions about speculative fiction, is that most of the story is framed around a dialogue between South Asian communities and Indigenous communities. And I think 
part of the uh, white nation fantasy. That's a concept introduced by an anthropologist named Gaston Hage. Part of the fantasy of, of like white dominance in Australia is that white people are the masters and facilitators of everything that happens in this country. And so usually when, when people of colour and Indigenous people are in dialogue, it's usually with white people. And usually there's this kind of construction that any conversations about Aboriginal rights or any conversations about multiculturalism have to be facilitated by white people. And what I think is really amazing about Rowana's story, which I think resonates with the rest of the book, is that you really see how we cut white people out of the equation. It's like we as Australians, Indigenous people who are first Australians, and, you know, people of colour who are, you know, um, from a migrant background or from a newly arrived background, we are in very strong moral positions and ethical and political positions to just talk to each other about this stuff. We don't need uh, white facilitation for us to make decisions about the nation. And I think that the book as a whole um, is a dialogue between Indigenous people and people of colour about where we think Australia is headed um, and what, what, what our concerns are as minorities in this country. Now, yeah, I... last point about uh, Ambulance piece. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Ambulance is one of the closing pieces in the book, and that was a deliberate decision because Ambulance really, you know, she, her story, her poem um, is a letter from the future to the, to the year 2020, and it's from her team, it's, you know, it's from, uh, it's from an, it's an Indigenous lens. And I, I really think that, once again, it really cements the idea that you cannot talk about the future unless you're talking about the past and the present simultaneously, and that it's a dialogue between these areas. Yeah, I look, I, I mean, I've just realised what the time is um, because I, I feel like we've only really embarked on this discussion. I do want to just uh, leave you both with this one question if, um, you know, if we can somehow answer it quickly, which is impossible, I'm sure. Um, Akaya, um, firstly, uh, to Mohammed's point about, you know, actually some of the, the seemingly vicious criticism that's been levelled by critics of this book that really suggests that um, the, the kind of political nature of writing fiction, if you are someone who belongs to a group that's been, um, you know, in the minority or has been, you know, not part of the conversation in the past, um, you know, seems to make it, this artwork inherently political. Is is that a feeling that you you have that you feel is intrinsic to what you do or is imposed upon what you do or both? Um, I, I does feel intrinsic in a way just because of, uh, how I've grown in critical consciousness and learning about this country's history, living on unceded land as a migrant settler. Um, these things, uh, do come up in my work and I think that's important. It's important to acknowledge these things because, uh, this is the truth about this country that we're living in and the truth about, uh, you know, what it, what it's like to live here as a migrant settler. Yeah. And Mohammed, um, you know, obviously you've mentioned um, that particularly one of the pieces has led to, I mean, I'm really appalled to hear death threats um, against the author, which, you know, as you say, really is evidence that this is obviously um, cutting something um, that that really needs to be exposed. Uh, do you feel like um, the act of writing, um, you know, as a person of colour has, you know, is an inherently political act, you know, uh, is one kind of taking on that relationship or is it imposed upon people? Um, it, it is a fantastic question. What I will say is that um, I think if you're living um, in a settler colony, uh, 
a person who identifies as indigenous or as a person of color, and I'll add into that uh, into that mix also a person who identifies as Muslim, which is, you know, within the global kind of Islamophobic discourse. That not just writing, but pretty much everything you do is a political act. If you enter into a relationship, it's a political act. You know, do you consciously choose to? be with another person of colour, or do you consciously choose to be with an Indigenous person? Do you consciously choose to be with somebody from the dominant white culture? And how do those things play out in your life? If you have kids, like, I have a child who's the child of a white mother and, and an Arab Muslim father. And so, you know, his identity as a mixed-race Arab-Australian Muslim boy is, um, is inherently political, whether he would like that to be the case or not, because his identity is constantly going to be politicised. And he constantly has to grow up in an environment where the, you know, the power dynamics between a white woman and an Arab man are playing out in front of him. So I think that is kind of inherent to our identities and our experiences. But here's, here's the most interesting point. This is the point I would like to finish on, which is, you know, I think that in the current uh, state of the world, particularly within the context of the Black Lives Matter movement, we are recognizing that there are some serious problems um, concerning the treatment of indigenous people, the people of color, um, um, refugees, Muslims in this country and in other settler colonies. And I think genuinely, um, you know, that most people are sincere in wanting to see the situation get better. I think most white people, black people and brown people are anti-racist and want to work together for, for a genuine solution. And the real problem is that they just don't know what the solution is. There's too much... Um, not Morrison in our heads and not enough Tony Morrison in our heads. And so here's the, here's, the, here's the closing point that I want to make, which is what is the best way you can, you as an Australian, regardless of your cultural background, and I include white people in this, what is the best way that you can actually support Indigenous writers and writers of colour to make a difference? And the answer is to actually invest in our work. It's actually exhausting for us as minorities to constantly say that we don't really get much out of a white journalist or a white writer writing a book about us. That doesn't mean much to us. And that doesn't really change our material circumstances. But when you actually hear, you know, people like myself and Kaya going on the radio and talking about our book that we make, that we were paid for, that represents us, that is our own voices, that we created, and you say, I'm going to go and I'm going to buy a book like After Australia, or I'm going to go and buy the books written by the contributors of After Australia. You genuinely make not just a symbolic contribution to, our, to investing in our works, but you also make a financial contribution. You actually enable us to keep making our work. You actually enable us to make a living. You actually enable us to look after our families. And I think that um, that is probably the first step towards the revolution. The first step is just investing in the work of Indigenous writers and writers of colour. That's an excellent note to uh, to leave this interview on, just, uh, just by the book, After Australia. Uh, thank you so much uh, for your time and joining me today, Michael Mohammed Ahmed and uh, Kaya Oritz uh, Latimer, or Ortiz, rather, Latimer. Uh, thank you for joining me today. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mel. Uh, that uh, was, of course, a discussion about After Australia, which is out now through Affirm Press. Uh, I very much recommend you buy and read it um, now that we have a little bit of time to do so. And I was speaking there with uh, Kaya Ortiz-Latima and uh, Michael Mohammed Ahmed, the editor of the 
collection. Uh, up next, uh, VoiceWorks has promoted the work of young writers for years and joining us very, very soon is the recently appointed editor, Nad, uh, Adalia Nash Hussein, who is going to be talking about this important journal and what to expect in the latest edition. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. VoiceWorks has always been an influential journal, stacking the industry with young talent that emerges stronger as each new generation passes through its pages. Its stated purpose to create a space for people under 25 to develop their creative and editorial skills and to publish and be paid for, this is an important part, their fiction, non-fiction, poetry, art and comics. Joining me on the line now is the recently appointed editor, Adalia Nash-Hussein, uh, to talk about about the journal, its mission, and what's happening in its pages. Adalia, welcome to Backstory. Hi, thanks for having me. Now, you uh, introduced the latest edition with a, and I quote, cooking show literary event hybrid, which I think is just total genius. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about this special edition? Um, yeah, so VoiceWorks, every issue we have a theme, and it's not super strict. Um, it's more to kind of... Um, help inspire people because I know, um, yeah, lots of people use VoiceWorks as kind of a writing exercise to work towards because even unsuccessful pieces receive feedback. So um, it's like a really great uh, exercise if you're feeling uninspired and wanting to try and write something and get some feedback on it. So um, we have themes that are more and less serious and this was perhaps the sillier one. The theme was butter. Um, so we had lots of work featuring food and butter and um, even just more that buttery feeling of, of softness and warmth. And I think um, in isolation especially, I kind of wanted to really honour um, honor that and honour that intimacy that I think um, butter evokes by creating something where um, you got to see into everyone's homes a little bit and see um, the Ed Commas and I kind of uh, make food and um, <laughs> and, and eat I really want this to be a regular thing. I don't know. I mean, honestly, my two great loves of food and literature together at last and, and why should they have ever been apart? I mean, it really mm. is. There, there is um, a recording of the event uh, up on the VoiceWorks site so so people can can watch it. But has it inspired you to maybe consider making, uh, making this kind of a regular part, like some kind of a mashing up of like uh, literature and cookery? Um, I think it's definitely made me think about the ways that we can do stuff. I think that, um, yeah, we've we've got to do some really amazing online events um, since the coronavirus kind of thing has happened, and I think um, it's made us think about how uh, we... I guess, present this stuff in like a more um, thoughtful way because I think, yeah, traditionally our launches, we just, you know, have a venue and people read out loud and we all listen to music and go home. <laughs> and um, obviously that's like not necessarily super exciting when there's not other people to talk to. And so it's kind of made us think about, okay, so how can we present these in a way that kind of um, elevates them and makes that an experience that um, can be enjoyable from home. And so, yeah, the cooking show was one idea of that. And we also did one in Animal Crossing. I'm not sure if you saw. And um, yes, I did. We've had a few. 
<laughs> we've had a few different ways of doing it. So, yeah, I'm definitely keen to see how other magazines do it and to see how um, being at home kind of makes people uh, rework uh, how we think about this stuff and, and maybe bring a little bit of that intimacy into the work. I did think it was really fascinating because obviously you're a real crucible for, for um, new talent and, the, you know, VoiceWorks is very particular because it's not just emerging writers, it is, it is very particularly focused on people under the age of 25. In fact, uh, you can't hold, posi- hold the position of editor or, um, you know, contribute if you're not under that age. Um, but it's also, uh, you know, really developing these amazing kind of forms. Like, for example, um, could you maybe explain to those who don't know much about Animal Crossing, um, like a little bit about what you did there? Because I'm really hoping that more kind of literary events might take advantage uh, of these sort of virtual spaces um, while, you know, we're sort of grounded in a lot of ways to get that feeling of community. Oh, thank you. That's very nice. Um, yeah, so our Animal Crossing launch, um, yeah, the game Animal Crossing is a video game. Um, it's been, there's been various iterations of it for, I don't know, 20 years or so, but um, the most recent one came out um, March 20th. I, I had it in my diary for a very long time. I was very excited about it. Um, and it came out kind of just in the start of, um, I guess, a lot of isolation for uh, at least people in Australia. And so uh, I think it kind of developed a bit more of a cult following than it even already had because it was this kind of um uh it's like a very slow game it's in a real time so the kind of you have your island with all your villages that you kind of you know make nice and have everybody like each other and things and um and the time on your island is the same as the time in the real world and so I think that that could be really uh it was really um I think comforting for a lot of people who are missing some of those everyday things like their commute and going to their local cafe and things to have something else that they could check in on and regular uh, interactions, I guess. Um, And so, yeah, it developed a bit of a cult following. And when we were thinking of how to present our our issue, I think we kind of were wanting to to find a way to kind of create that that atmosphere and to create that kind of excitement and introduction and, um, and to get to have that sort of same feel, but without... Uh, obviously being able to actually do that. So, yeah, I um, made recordings in Animal Crossing of um, various different characters, including myself and the uh, previous editor, Mira, and um, the previous designer, Mikey Sun, to go with them, and various um, poets and (laughs) punks that were at the launch. Um, And I also used uh, one other feature in Animal Crossing is you can uh, design patterns for T-shirts and also just to go on the ground. So I made a big kind of launch space with the magazine cover on the ground and I made um, merch featuring uh, the cover design and old logos and um, some of the art that you could find in the magazine so there was kind of you could make an exhibition of the work from inside the magazine and wear the merch so yeah kind of that there was a sense of um, tangibility even though it was obviously purely digital. That's great. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg, and I'm talking to the recently appointed VoiceWorks editor, uh, Adalia Nash Hussein. Adalia, you have been, uh, you know, your editorship has started in isolation, and you have been in isolation for the whole time that you've been editor. It's an extraordinary position to be in. Uh, and obviously, you know, through what we've just been discussing, you've, you've made it a feature rather than a, a shortcoming. Um, but how has it been? 
it must be really strange to be to be working on what is an inherently collaborative enterprise while completely uh, you know I guess alone in some ways yeah yeah definitely I think um I'm really lucky I think for a lot of reasons both just getting this job at this time it's a really lucky um, timing for me it was also just really good to have um I was on the editorial editorial committee before I became editor so I kind of was already familiar with a lot of the the process and the rhythm so I wasn't kind of um coming to terms with this completely new object and uh job and group of people um while I was also uh, alone, I kind of knew what I was working with and most of the people I was working with. But, um, yeah, definitely shifting to online meetings has been really different. I think um, even as much as I love, like, talking to people on, on Zoom and things, I think, uh, or Google Meets, as we use, um, I still think there's, like, a different kind of... Um, tiredness or something that I can get after after that, just um, managing a group of 20 people that aren't actually in a space together, <laughs> making that conversation feel natural can be really hard. But um, it's also just been so, so lucky. I, I really do, um, yeah, love all of the editors that work with us. And I guess I'm kind of lucky in terms of, um, I was talking with our, our new designer, Selena Reponis, who's really talented and um a lovely person um and she was saying to us like oh yeah you know I feel like um I love I love this job because I it feels like um you guys are the only new friends that I've made since March it's so nice to still be making new friends and and yeah I'm really lucky with VoiceWorks because well you know even just working with the new writers all the time but also bringing on new editors um I get to kind of make lots of new friends and get to um, still talk to people quite a lot and, and that's really um, really lucky and enjoyable. There's a real, um, you know, at, while you know, there's obviously an age limit on being involved in VoiceWorks, there is that real Hotel California feel about it because people who've been previous editors act as mentors or um, have some further involvement as well as, you know, Express Media being the kind of umbrella body. Um, it's a real kind of mentoring um, type environment as well. Um, is that kind of one of the big attractions, do you think, for people to be associated with it, as well as the kind of amazing sort of energy and um, creativity within the group of people that are running it? Yeah, I think there's a lot of really great things about that. I think, um, yeah, obviously, I I was lucky. I was, you know, 19 when I joined VoiceWorks, and lots of people um, are much older when they kind of... Uh, start writing or start realizing that that's something that they want to do and get involved with and and I definitely sympathize with um the fact that uh voice works can't serve those people but I think that um there's something really amazing about the age cap that I think means that um yeah you constantly have people coming and going and that gives this real amazing space for um lots of voices to come through and really build the magazine in these amazing ways. I think, um, yeah, just sort of looking at how it's grown through different editors, I think you can see where each editor has kind of had something they're really passionate about that they've kind of brought to this whole new level or, or even the designers and stuff. Like I think Mikey is such an incredible designer and really took our um, design aesthetic to a whole new whole new level and um Selena's is completely different but I think that she couldn't have been so herself if Mikey hadn't been so himself in the design and so I think there's something really amazing about um people coming through and 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 getting to kind of execute their vision and knowing when it when it's over and moving on to something else and 
I think that that means that it doesn't stagnate. You get to see, you know, the previous editor, Mira, was like a really, is really amazing comics artist in their own right and is really passionate about comics. And you can see the caliber of comics that we've received is just so incredible and really amazing and has really developed a lot over the past few years. And, um, yeah, similarly, I think you just can see that over every editorship, it gets to grow and get better and we get to learn from that person and then somebody else who has a different passion builds up something else and so it's constantly getting better as an organization we get to kind of really learn from each other constantly and that's really valuable well uh, i would love to keep talking to you about this adalia there's there's much more to discuss but i'm afraid that's all we have time for today uh i'd like to thank you so much for joining me today on backstory thanks so much for having me thank you that was adalia nash hussein the uh recently appointed editor of VoiceWorks, and if you want to find out more about the journal or if you're under the age of 25 and, and perhaps want to try and contribute, uh, please visit voiceworksmag.com.au. I would like to thank my guests, uh, Michael Mohammed Ahmed, uh, Kaya Aritz Latimer, and Adalia Nash Hussein. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Wednesday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website, Facebook, Instagram or Twitter.